Frederick Julius's Lonely Boy is a 10-episode fictional coming-of-age audio drama. Start with episode one and listen in sequence. If you love it, hit subscribe, follow Frederick Julius on Facebook, or join our email list for exclusive content, free tracks, and episode announcements. Happy listening! Sick Picnic Media presents Frederick Julius's Lonely Boy, a novella in sound and color. Written and narrated by Matt Geiler. Episode 7, Night of the Rifle. Now I think we're ready for the real fire. Mr. Lauderdale was standing over my right shoulder, smiling down at my progress on the painting with an almost maniacal gleam emanating from his dark eyes. He leaned in beside me, anchoring himself on the right side of the drafting table and looking straight ahead at the rose in the cherry Coke can with a crafty determination evidenced by his wry smile. There was an almost ravenous light about him like even the painting itself had no idea what he had in store for it. He reminded me of Han Solo about to fly into an asteroid field. What's the real fire? I asked. <laughs> the real fire is going to put this thing over the top, he blurted, not at all answering my question. And with that, he made a cartoonishly fast disappearance back to the locker behind his desk. The only thing missing was the slide whistle sound effect and the puff of smoke. Under Lauderdale's instruction and guidance, I had made more progress on my painting in the last four school days than I had the entire summer of going it alone. And I noticed that every time he transitioned from guiding the rest of the class through their fundamental exercises to helping me with my watercolor, his entire demeanor would change. I could actually see it happen in the few seconds it took him to walk from the main room into the area where he had set me up. In ten or twelve steps, the weary, beleaguered Lauderdale dissolved into a strident, purposeful Lauderdale who became so energized and focused on the details of a thirteen-year-old kid's artwork that under ordinary circumstances, it might have scared me. But I didn't feel scared at all. I felt like we were a team battling together to produce one of the greatest paintings of all time. It was true that we were making our bid for artistic immortality in the absolute middle of nowhere, but because of Lauderdale's daring energy, in my mind, I imagined the entire town would celebrate our work as a revelation. Just like stories I'd read about how in Montmartre in Paris in the early 1900s, the Cognoscenti would loud almost daily works of genius from revolutionary talents like Cezanne, Matisse, and Picasso, I was certain almost before the painting was halfway finished that the Waverly City Council would stage an elaborate ceremony where the whole town would cheer as the rose in the Coke can was unveiled toasting Lauderdale and me with raised reservoir glasses of absinthe. More than likely, it would be cans of bush light, but I did feel a celebration was inevitable. That is the fire. Lauderdale had reappeared and was holding a box out toward me that said Pasha AB Turbine on it, with a picture of some sort of mechanical tool I'd never seen before. 
I stopped painting and leaned in a bit. What is that? I asked. That's the airbrush I told you about, Lauderdale enthused. That's the thing that's going to blow their minds. Despite my own personal fantasies, I had no idea who he was talking about. Whose minds? I wondered out loud. Lauderdale put the box down on a nearby stool, pulled another stool up close to mine, and sat down. So, there's this competition, he began. It's called the Scholastic Art Competition, and it's a national contest. But the regional round is in Omaha at the College of St. Mary. If you win there, you get to compete in the national show in New York. Radio static and humming amplifier fuzz engulfed my neck. That sounds cool, I mumbled, betraying none of my excitement at the possibility he'd just dumped out. I guess I never asked you if you want to enter the painting, Lauderdale grinned. I looked back over at it and began to imagine the pop can rose hanging on a pristine wall under museum-quality glass, illuminated by gallery lights, while throngs of people craned their necks and pressed towards stanchions with velvet ropes to get a closer look. This wasn't a grade school poster contest or a local fundraiser for the Waverly Arts Foundation. What Lauderdale was talking about was a real art show. Does that sound interesting to you? Sure, yeah, I think that would be great. The tricky part is that the submission deadline is in a couple of days, Lauderdale confessed. So we'd have to finish it in the next two class periods, and then I'd take it with me and drop it off on my way home. Oh, do you live in Omaha? I asked. The idea that Lauderdale might live someplace other than the Waverly Junior High art room hadn't really occurred to me. Maybe this was because he only ever wore three different shirts and one pair of dusty houndstooth pants, all perpetually rumpled, giving the impression that he never changed clothes. In my imagination, he was always there, fueling secret all-night painting sessions with black coffee, stopping only to catch fitful naps in his chair, and then plunging back into a final frenzied push before students arrived in the morning. Yeah he confirmed, sounding exhausted. I drive back and forth every day. Lauderdale wearily exhaled as he removed the airbrush from its box and began affixing a fabric cord that I could see was connected to a small air compressor on the floor. It gets pretty old, he continued. But it's a job, right? You gotta have a job. He said that last part like it was a prison sentence. So, you've never used one of these things? I shook my head. I'd never seen an airbrush before. It looked like the backward steampunk version of an old hash pipe, something I had seen in a few pictures when I was reading about opium dens in a book about the California gold rush. The silver tapering body was obscured in the middle by a faded yellow rubber grip and had a confusing array of buttons, screws, and levers arranged on top. I know it looks complicated, but once you get the hang of it, you'll be hooked, promised Lauderdale, switching on the compressor. How long does it take to learn to use it? You'll be comfortable with it by the time class is out. I wanted to believe that, but I could already feel my stomach bottoming out a little. 
The airbrush reminded me of exactly the sort of obscure tools my dad sent me looking for when I was forced to work with him in the shop out in the barn. He'd enjoin me to go get him a router plane, or the rotor calipers, without explaining what they looked like or where they were kept. Instantly panicking because I didn't want to let him down, but also had no idea where to find them, I would then spend far too much time fumbling around in the back of the shop. Eventually, I would either bring him the wrong thing or fail completely, causing him to come storming away from whatever he was working on to find me, usually brushing me aside to handle it himself, his face a disparaging mask of disdain. It felt awful, like I was a complete disappointment. Over the years, I had developed an almost total aversion to tools, especially ones that looked like my father might use them along with a highly concentrated guilt that I was abandoning yet another avenue leading to true manhood. I sat there staring at the airbrush, not saying anything, becoming more swollen with anxiousness and feeling my stomach churn as the sounds around me receded into a field of white noise. A snap of Lauderdale's fingers brought me back. Do you want to get started? He repeated. I'm not very good with tools, I stammered. It's a lot easier to use than it looks. It's just that I, I, I don't want to mess up the painting. By now, the hot red itchiness was all over my head. I could tell my cheeks were flushing with the warmth of embarrassment, and my eyes felt thick and heavy as they began to water. It was true that I was worried about ruining the painting. I didn't want to blow my shot at having my work exhibited in New York City, but I also didn't want to let Lauderdale down. The air compressor was still running, pulsing, and I felt trapped and my chest started shaking as my breath gave out. Lauderdale lowered the airbrush and put his left hand on my shoulder. I get nervous too, he said softly. You get this far into a painting and everything's looking good? That's when I get afraid I'll make a mistake that I can't fix. I nodded. I didn't look at him because I was well aware tears were traveling down my face. Two had already plopped on the floor, making clear splotches amid some paint splatters. That's why we're going to do a few practice runs. Lauderdale got up and attached a scrap piece of watercolor paper to the side of the drafting board with masking tape and returned to his seat. He picked the airbrush back up and put it in my right hand. I'll help guide you until you feel like you've got it. First thing, hold it just like you would a pencil. I positioned the airbrush in my hand just as I was instructed. It felt solid and substantial, but not heavy. Perfect, he encouraged me. Now slide it forward a little so that you can rest your index finger on top of that trigger. Pressing that down and forward will start the flow of paint. How does the paint get in there? I asked, practicing on the trigger. Great question. That's where I'm going to help you. I'll take care of mixing up the color, and you'll concentrate on applying it. I'll put a little bit of black in with the burnt sienna we used for the windowsill, and we can practice on this scrap of paper. Lauderdale filled the reservoir cup at the rear of the brush with the watered-down dark brown paint and in a few seconds, I was spraying the scrap with an even mist. For the first few passes, he guided my hand with his, giving me pointers as we went. 
The great thing about these Poshes is they've got the low pressure turbine, so you can get really fine detail without a lot of overspray, he said. It does not take much on the trigger, just a nice, easy, consistent push. I had already made a variety of improvised lines and gradients when I noticed he was no longer guiding me, but standing back a few feet with his arms folded, delighted by my quick progress. <laughs> You're a natural, he gushed before becoming serious again. Now, we're going to use that dark brown to add some realistic shadow to the windowsill. Isn't this kind of like cheating? I asked. This is the way professionals do it, Lauderdale countered. Besides, it's just a more efficient way of applying paint evenly. Look really close at that scrap of paper. I leaned in so close to my practice applications, my nose was grazing the fibers. I felt calm and sure of myself again. I wanted to drink in all of the details. If you look here and here, he said, pointing with his pinky finger, you can see that although the spray is even, it still has a really natural speckling effect. That's the kick-ass thing about these turbine brushes. They give you precision and control without looking like you used a machine. Teachers aren't supposed to cuss. This high-pitched proverb came from Graham Snyder, who had wandered away from his seat in the main classroom and landed right behind Lauderdale and me, clutching his art pencil like a switchblade. Holy shit, Julius, did you paint that? He yelled right in my ear. You know who else isn't supposed to cuss? Kids who are failing art, muttered Lauderdale. And of course he painted it. Now most of the rest of the class was drifting in around us, lured by the commotion of the escalating exchange. There's no way, Graham rambled on. He totally traced it. He traced a rose in a soda can on a windowsill? Are you also failing geometry, Mr. Snyder? I can't take geometry. That's in high school. I'm in Math 7. The surprise of the year, Lauderdale quipped. Why don't you try tracing a three-dimensional object sometime and see how that goes? You could wrap the paper around the can and then unfold it after you're done tracing. That's stupid, Graham. That would never work. Now Michelle Seavers was weighing in. She was the smartest person in our grade and had no hang-ups about letting you know it. How do you know? Graham fired back. Because when you unfolded the paper, the outline would be twice as big and not even the same shape. Duh, explained Michelle, clearly enjoying herself. Mr. Snyder, just accept that this is beyond you and move on, Lauderdale interjected. As this spirited squabble had taken flight behind me, I had begun shading the windowsill on the actual painting, focusing on the gentle vibration of the airbrush in my hand and carefully directing the dark brown spray into gathering shadows at the edges of the lighter tan areas. The thrum of the compressor made a pleasant rhythmic hiss. Slowly, the painting took on a new dimensionality, becoming deeper and wider somehow. The volume of the voices around me dialed down to nothing and was replaced by dreamy, surging rhythm guitars soaked in vintage plate reverb and a walking bass line lightly frosted with shakers and chimes, all lapping in cool, quick waves over my neck and shoulders, pushing me toward the rose and the can, my surprising control of the airbrush combining with the awareness of other kids watching me 
to produce a crescendo of mossy, euphoric fuzz. Wow, Louderdale marveled. <laughs> I'll buy those shadows. I'd call it beginner's luck, but I know better. You've definitely got a good touch with that thing. I smiled, and as I did, I noticed I wasn't looking down or away from him. So, now we change out our paint and tackle the shadows on the can and the rose, which will be very slight. Just a dusting of paint ought to do it. Louderdale switched off the compressor and took the brush over to the sink to flush it out before mixing up more paint. I felt an immense sense of relief, like I was wearing a jacket of confidence in the crisp autumn air. Twenty minutes ago, I could feel the painting about to slip away under a swelling tide of pressure and fear. And now, even though Louderdale hadn't said this, I felt like we were both standing at the finish line ready to take the last powerful stride in a well-run race. Just a light trisp along the right edge of the can and around the top of the rose petals, he instructed calmly and somewhat breathless as he filled the brush's reservoir with a darkish crimson. I knew trisp wasn't a word, and I knew exactly what Louderdale meant. Such was the wordless accord between us. The compressor ran for all of a minute before he turned it off again. We both sat in silence looking at the painting. I don't think we'll need another class period, Louderdale finally offered. I think we're there. I felt everything coming to the surface again. My bottom lips started to quiver and my shoulders began a slight shake as I tried to gulp down the thickness in my throat and blink away the wetness in my eyes. When I turned to him, I saw that the classroom was empty. I hadn't even heard the bell. Mr. Lauderdale, I croaked. Can I say something? Sure. I just want to say thank you for doing all of this for me. You did this. This is your painting, Freddy. I just helped push you along. I wanted to tell him everything. All the loneliness and hurt and desperate want that made me painted in the first place, but I couldn't. Just at that moment, all I could do was hang my head and shudder and cry. It was the kind of crying that gets worse the more you try to stop yourself from doing it, resulting in hiccup-like seizing that makes your breath catch. I'm sorry, I just... I'm just... At some point in the faltering cloudburst, Louderdale reached over and put his hand around the back of my neck. You don't have to apologize for anything, he said. It's okay that you feel things deeply. You're an artist. That's what artists do. When he said that, I let out what felt like years of blocked breath. Do you really think I'm a real artist? I exhaled. Yeah, I really do. Louderdale assured me. Just promise me you'll keep painting. The hallways were completely empty and silent when I emerged, and I decided to walk down to my mom's room in the high school by way of the football field outside, around the back of the building. I took my time. I lifted my chest into the September air as I walked, allowing its medley of warm and coldish currents to fill my lungs and widen my smile. I had just climbed a mountain I'd been ascending since May, 
And now that I was standing on the peak, my vision was clear and limitless, and everything seemed possible. Freddy, come sit by me! It was Jill calling out to me from the middle of the bleachers where she was reclined with the rest of the girls watching football practice. All five of them were stretched out, serene and assured in the late afternoon sun, like prefects on high presiding over all the utterly mundane mortal matters playing out below. Her siren call came cascading through the open air across the gravel track where I was walking and hit me about midfield with peals of the other girl's laughter trailing just behind. Come sit with me, Freddy, sang Jo Neal, doubling over with laughter that began in her chest and burst up and out, infecting the other girls immediately and becoming that common currency familiar to anyone who had seen them together in the halls or at lunch. Please, Freddy, I'm gonna die if you don't come sit with me, Christy purred wrapping her arms around Jill, who was smiling and shaking her head. Lisa was doing one of those I see you waves where your hand is still, except for just the fingers moving up and down. Angie was looking up skeptically from her notebook. As always, her smile was perched precisely between bemused and bored. Stop it, you guys. You're going to embarrass him. Jill giggled as she rose up and descended down the bleachers to earth running across the track to where I was standing. Sorry, she exhaled as she landed in front of me. They're relentless. It's okay, I chuckled. I'm not embarrassed. Good, Jill approved, leaning in and leaving a two-second peppermint kiss on my lips that I could still smell and taste hours later. Where are you headed? Just in my mom's room. What are you guys up to? Not much, Jill shrugged. It's so nice out, we all decided to sit on the bleachers together. Girl time, you know? Lisa arrived behind Jill as she said that, her eyes aglow with the afternoon. Hey, lovers, are you two sneaking kisses over here? She questioned, resting her hands on Jill's shoulders and pulling her slightly backward. She looked delighted. We were just talking, Jill laughed, crossing her arms and locking eyes with me. Yeah, we were just talking, I concurred, not breaking eye contact. But we do this thing when we talk where we touch our lips together and don't say anything. Jill and Lisa roared with glee at this, their tickled cannonade charging into me at point-blank range, covering me in a stereo chorus of laugh-filled tangerine treble feedback. You're so funny, Lisa managed, catching her breath. Nobody makes Jill laugh like you. Kind of the truth, Jill added on, her eyes settling back on mine. I didn't know how this could actually be the truth, considering the threads of our lives had only been intertwined for a few days, but I didn't care. I didn't know them at all, but I understood that the Eagle Girls subsisted on right now, this moment. There wasn't any other fuel that burned hot enough to propel them. Whether it was tomorrow or a couple of years, the future cast no spell on them, and if you belonged to yesterday, you were invisible. But if you were lucky enough to tumble into them today, and they decided to admit you into their calure, you believed them completely when they said things like that. I felt like I never wanted to fall back out of their weightless circle of light. Right as I thought that, 
Jill, Lisa, and I were abruptly grounded. Ah, come on, RJ! This harsh, guttural blast of frustration came from a towering man in a navy sport coat and gray slacks, standing a few rows up at the very eastern end of the bleachers. His voice cut through every other sound, turning our heads first to him and then to the football field where everything had come to a complete halt. You're not even trying. What's the matter with you? The man continued, his face so red that it made his strawberry blonde hair look almost white. Come on! The three of us looked from RJ's dad back to the field. Even though everybody had helmets on, it was easy to tell which one was RJ. His tall, well-defined frame, made even more hulking by the shoulder pads beneath his practice jersey, was slumped down and forward. His head was lowered, and his hands were on his hips, the classic pose of a demoralized player about to get an earful from an irate coach. Except this wasn't coming from the coach, and it was way more than an earful. If you're not even going to try, we might as well get in the car and head home, yelled RJ's dad. His face was almost maroon and his fists were clenched. I take off work early to come watch you practice and this is what you're doing? Half-assing it and phoning it in? It's a joke. Aren't you embarrassed? Don't you got any self-respect? Yeah, right, growled Lisa under her breath, with you screaming at him all the time. I turned back to see that she was seething and it seemed like the ringlets of freckles under her eyes might catch fire. Jill was just standing silently, with her jaw tightened and her eyes narrowed, making me think for a second that she and my mom might share some strand of righteously indignant DNA that surfaced whenever they witnessed an injustice, no matter who the victim was. RJ's dad continued on with his geyser of verbal abuse, apparently unconcerned with the fact that now the entire football team and everybody within earshot of the field was standing still, staring at RJ, who had begun pacing back and forth along the sideline, the pressure of his short, quick steps conveying how close he was to erupting. You know something? This is just what you do whenever you think anything's too hard or too much work, his dad blustered on. You just lay down and quit. That's what you do. You quit. Hey, at least now everybody knows you're a quitter. I wouldn't want to run behind you either if you were blocking for me. You'd probably trip on purpose just so you wouldn't have to hit somebody. Let's go. This is a joke. Let's get in the car so the people who want to work hard can get back to practicing. Jesus, Jill whispered, shaking her head. The torrent of abuse continued unbroken until finally RJ ripped his helmet off and catapulted it across the track. It crashed into the bleachers about six feet from where his dad was perched ricocheting up and off the side into the grass ditch by the east entrance, which is where I was headed when Jill called out to me. Why don't you shut the hell up and leave me alone? RJ yelled and started pacing around again. Oh, are we going to do this right now? His dad fired back, storming down from the bleachers and stalking across the track straight for RJ. He was livid but he was also smiling, like maybe he actually enjoyed yelling at and fighting with his kid. This is how you want to play it? You want to get into it right here, right now? RJ and his dad were now standing face to face. If RJ was maybe an inch or two taller, it might have just looked like two random grown men about to fight instead of a dad challenging his 13-year-old son. 
Let's go. Let's see what you got, tough guy. RJ's dad splayed out his arms and opened his chest. Go for it. Wait, oh, that's right. You don't hit people. Kid's a so-called lineman, and he doesn't like to hit people. (laughs) Maybe you should try place kicker instead. That way, you don't ever have to be on the field since you guys never score anyway. Just shut up! RJ had barely screamed these words before his dad seized him by the collar and pulled him in even closer. The open palm of his free hand slammed down on the side of RJ's face. The sound was like a firecracker going off. As RJ staggered backward from the impact, the report continued to pop and bounce through the now leaden, silent air. You don't have so much to say now, do you? His dad scoffed, still puffed up, but also casually wiping his hands of the violence he'd just visited on his own son. Every single person on the team, including the coaches, was looking away or down at the ground. Lisa was looking down, too. Jill was still watching, her wide eyes brimming with tears and her lips slightly open as RJ gathered himself back into his original head-down slump and placed his hands back on his hips. You're done, RJ's dad barked over his shoulder as he walked away. I'll see you at the car. I couldn't decide which was worse, the fact that RJ's dad was the kind of guy who'd beat his kid in public, or the fact that nobody seemed compelled to do anything other than stand around and watch it happen. You'd think that one of the coaches would at least go over and make sure he was okay, but that didn't happen either. Practice just slowly resumed, the resuscitation of its rhythms leaving RJ standing alone where he was, with a vicious purple welt under his eye looking around at nobody in particular. We'd better go, Lisa said softly, touching Jill's arm. Come on, let's go. See ya, murmured Jill as she turned away. I was hoping she'd kiss me again, but all of the playfulness and sparkling from just moments ago had evaporated. What was left was the maundering vacuum of stillness and shame that hangs doubly thick after such an attack in a small town like ours. And the only thing countering its oppressive weight is the unspoken collective desperation to get out and never come back. Instead of continuing on to the end of the high school, I decided to walk back the way I had come. Now I just wanted to leave the ugly scene that had unfolded on the field behind me and get to my mom's room as quickly as possible. I put my head down and got moving, my sneakers creating a hurried syncopation on the gravel of the track as I clutched my backpack and picked up speed. Don't you just wish you had a dad like RJ's? I stopped short and looked up abruptly to my right. Angie Desiree was still sitting in the same spot on the bleachers, scribbling in her notebook, her chaotic curls brushing the pages and obscuring her face. Yeah, right, I said, glancing back toward the field. I can't believe his dad hit him like that. I can, Angie said, looking up and sweeping the hair out of her eyes. I think it happens a lot. Why do you think that? Well, for starters, his dad's been yelling at him in front of everybody for years. I remember when we were on the same softball team in second grade. He'd show up to the games and yell at RJ just like that. When you were in second grade? Like when he was eight years old? Yep, 
Angie confirmed. You know Cammie Garland? Not really, I admitted. I mean, kind of. I know who she is. We used to be friends in fourth grade, and she lives next door to RJ. One night when I was sleeping over, we heard this gigantic crash, so we went to the window. And you can see from her bedroom window right into the kitchen window of RJ's house. And his dad was like yelling at him and his mom and his sister just like that. We saw him throw a bunch of glasses and silverware and stuff. And his mom was sitting in this chair at the table, and she tried to get him to stop, and he smacked her across the face. And then RJ went after his dad, and his dad smacked him across the face too. You saw that? Yep, we saw the whole thing from Cammie's room. I sat down on the first bleacher about four or five rows down from where Angie was sitting. I didn't know what to say. There had been a lot of times in my life when I wanted to make my dad stop yelling or throwing something, but I'd always been too terrified to try. Maybe that was why my dad had never hit me. Even though RJ was mostly a jerk to me, I had to admire him trying to intervene in dangerous grown-up stuff as a fourth grader, especially since his dad was that tall. I guess I didn't really think RJ had those kind of problems, I said softly more to myself than to Angie. I was thinking about his vast house where I'd first seen her in real life and where I'd felt small and lacking because of its sheer size and opulence. I felt even smaller now for assuming that RJ was just a spoiled rich kid bully living in a castle and nothing else. I wasn't exactly sure why, but I felt like I should have known. When I looked up at Angie, she was paused, staring at me from underneath that veil of easy, dissolute curls with her skeptical, knowing eyes. Here's the thing, though, she started in, closing her notebook and moving down swiftly to sit next to me. Her voice slipped into a low, smoky whisper that wound around both of us with the open wind of a simple truth told secretly. If that stuff was happening then and it's still happening now, how many times has it happened in between? I don't know. I fumbled a bit, my stomach turning at the realization that the answer to Angie's question could be literally any number. Three? Twenty? Every day? A possibility I didn't even want to think about when I realized what sort of number doing the math would produce. And then people wonder why RJ acts like a grade-A dick all the time, Angie said, shaking her head and going back to her notebook. I nodded in silent agreement. Where are the rest of the girls? I asked. They went home, I guess, she answered, not looking up. They don't have to wait a million years for their rides. Do you ride home with your parents? Not if I can help it. Do you know Sheila Scudder? She's a sophomore. She's a cheerleader. I had no clue who Sheila Scudder was. She lives on my street, so I get a ride with her. But she has cheerleading practice after school, so I have to wait. Why don't you want to ride with your parents? I don't really want to talk about it, first of all. She still wasn't looking up, but she was smiling slightly. And second of all, it's none of your business. Let's just say I'm really pissed at my parents right now, so... I don't really want to be in the same car with them. I probably saw between 30 and 50 high schoolers in the halls walking down to my mom's room after school every day, and I tried my best to avoid every single one of them. 
The fact that Angie Desiree knew a sophomore well enough to get rides home after school meant that she not only talked to high school kids, but was capable of forging relationships with them, meaning she wasn't scared of them. Realizing this confirmed my suspicion that Angie was a fully formed captain of her own destiny, blazing her own trail the same way the late afternoon sun blazed through the wild strands of her careless hair, through sheer force of will. But the fact that this was her response to having a problem with her parents made me long to actually be her, someone who could say out loud how they were feeling and then do something about it. Do you ride home with your mom? She asked as she continued looking down and riding. Yeah, how did you know? Well, you ride with her to school, so I kind of assumed. Oh, yeah, right. I like your mom, she said, looking up. Speaking of which, I should get going. She's probably waiting for me. Cool, she said, returning her eyes to the notebook. I'd walked about 20 feet when Angie's voice stopped me and turned me back around. Oh, by the way, good job, she called. On what? I asked. On not being a dick, she smiled. Good job. Freddie, can you help me? I looked up from my math homework to find Patrick standing right next to me at the side of our dining table, looking genuinely forlorn. What do you need help with? Can you come to the bathroom with me? My brother was long past the age of needing help in the bathroom, but I still didn't like the sound of this. What are you doing in the bathroom? I asked, wrinkling my face into a mask of annoyance. I just need your help with something, he pressed. Dinner's going to be ready in about 15 minutes, my mom reminded us above the din of boiling water, a sizzling grill, and the current of news and advertisements pouring out of the small transistor radio she kept turned on in the kitchen while she cooked. Just please come into the bathroom so I can show you, Patrick pleaded. Hey mom, is dad going to be home for dinner? This was not an insignificant question, because the answer often made the difference between whether the lead-up to dinner was fraught with mounting tension in advance of my dad's typically disgruntled arrival through the front door, or was relatively laid back and loose and gentle. If it was just me, Patrick, and Mom, 15 minutes might actually be 20. It didn't really matter because my mom took her time and just came and got us from our room when the food was ready. If my dad was going to be home for dinner, it was all hands on deck because everything needed to be ready and on the table, and we needed to be seated right when he walked in. There was a noticeable space between the end of me asking that and when she answered. I think he's working late tonight, she exhaled. So it's just going to be the three of us. Okay, show me, I said, turning back to Patrick. Once we were in the bathroom, it became clear that he was up to something big. The entire vanity had been transformed into what appeared to be a makeshift recording studio. My mother's stereo occupied all of the counter space and was being prevented from tipping into the sink by massive arrangements of towels that Patrick had stacked all over the place. Positioned flush against the front edge of the counter was his toy synthesizer, 
a Christmas gift, shoved so close to the tape deck that it looked like you wouldn't be able to open the windows far enough to even get a cassette in there. The synthesizer was plugged into a small amplifier on the floor, leaving minimal space between it, the shower, and the toilet for both of us to stand. When Patrick closed the door and shoved another towel underneath it, things were so tight we had to stand face to face instead of side by side. What is this? I asked. What are you doing in here? I'm recording a song that I wrote, he beamed. You wrote a song? I brightened. When did you write a song? I've been writing it. I'm going to do it at the talent show. What is it? I could feel my pulse quickening and an excitement rising in my chest. My brother had spent a lot of time playing on that synth since he'd gotten it, but I hadn't realized that he'd been writing music on it. Up until now, it had just been an enthusiastically noodled thread in the web of background noise in our house. Here, let me show you how it goes. Patrick was rubbing his hands together rapidly and smiling, his round cheeks blossoming into rosy apples. This is the melody for the verses. As his fingers nimbly produced a sunny run of notes, I could feel my mouth drop open a little. Patrick, that sounds like a real song. I know, he gleamed, rubbing his hands again. I was going to record it on one of Mom's blank tapes. What are the words? There aren't any yet, he admitted. That's why I need your help. Can you write some words for it? Right now? Yeah, quick, before we have to eat dinner, he rambled. We can record it really quick. There's no shortage of adults who spend decades only ever contemplating taking the tiniest creative steps, scribbling a few feet of poetry on the back of an envelope and then abandoning them for years, formulating entire novels on long walks through the neighborhood only to let them dissipate into the endless, relentless parade of more pressing concerns. But when you're 11 or 13... Eight minutes is more than enough time to write and record a chart-topping hit. Having torn through the house to my mom's writing desk to commandeer a pencil and some typing paper, I crashed back into the bathroom and settled on the floor to craft what I knew would become classic lyrics, using the closed lid of the toilet as an impromptu writing surface. What did you want the song to be about? I asked Patrick. I was thinking something fun about summer. Like the Beach Boys stuff. Okay, hmm, I pondered aloud. What about, like, something to do with, like, girls and cars? Yeah, grinned Patrick, just like that. Trying to keep the melody he'd played me in my head, I moved my hand feverishly across the paper, not even really thinking about the words, and just letting them burble out onto the page as images flitted in and out of my mind. Can you play the melody again? Sure, Patrick said, performing it on the synthesizer. I scratched a few more words out, lightly humming some of the notes, trying to make sure all the syllables lined up with them. Although I'd never engaged in this sort of haphazard alchemy before, it felt mad and free and comforting and safe all at once, like the electric euphoric charge of falling in a dream or the tingling blanket of arm hairs raising beneath the slight chill of an early spring breeze. Okay, 
I breathed finally as I finished. Play it one more time and I'll sing with it. Patrick played the melody again, and we both smiled at each other as we realized the words fit. When I see her on the street in her shiny Ford Mustang, her looks can't be beat cause her car's always hustling. Mustang, Mustang, go, go, go. Mustang, Mustang, go, go, go. And she's looking real fine and the car's looking cool now. I want her to be mine, gotta drive that car somehow. Mustang, Mustang, go, go, go. Mustang, Mustang, go, go, go. Awesome, my brother cackled. Okay, I'm going to record it. Put the paper on top of the synth so we can look at it while we sing. We have to lean into the speaker while we sing. I'll play and sing a harmony on top of your vocal. We crowded into the stereo so close our ears were touching, and it felt like we were sharing the same breath. Patrick pressed down on the record and play buttons, and we started singing together. When I see her on the street in her shiny Ford Mustang, if we hadn't been in such a hurry, I would have stopped to marvel at Patrick's emergence as a fifth-grade musical prodigy. For months, I had believed that he just spent a lot of time practicing the keyboard. I didn't understand that he was busy becoming a ten-year-old musical genius. Mustang, Mustang, go, go, go. Mustang, Mustang, go, go, go. That When we sat down for dinner, neither of us could contain ourselves. Mom, we recorded a song, Patrick yelled. We recorded a song I wrote. Freddie wrote the words and I wrote the music and we both sang on it. Yeah, Patrick set up a studio in the bathroom, I explained, my own enthusiasm compelling me to speak authoritatively on matters I was clueless about. He put towels down so we could get the pro vocals on it. I can't wait to hear it, my mom said softly. Can you play it for me after dinner? I got the tape right here, Patrick sang, producing the first master ever recorded in the tiny bathroom of our temporary farmhouse. He charged away from the table and climbed the ladder up to the loft, where he grabbed my mother's Wallensack 3M cassette tape recorder and spirited it back down to the dining room area. Patrick and I smiled at each other as our voices and his synthesizer floated out of the recorder and over our dinner. My mother was listening to it in just the way I knew she would, with her chin resting on one hand and the other lightly tapping in rhythm on the table, her eyes closed, and her face gentle and warm and alive. It's incredible, she proclaimed as the song ended. I am so proud of you, Patrick. You wrote an actual song, and it's amazing. She rose up from her chair and kissed Patrick on the exact center of the top of his head while squeezing his cheeks with her hands, her time-honored method of celebrating him. Then she leaned over to me and gave me a hug. Thank you for helping your brother, Freddy, she whispered. I'm going to play it for Dad when he gets home, Patrick plotted. Right when he comes through the door, I'll play it. When he said this, I saw my mom raise her left hand to her mouth almost like she was stifling a cough. She was still smiling, but her eyes were watery and her chin was trembling. I think, she started before catching her breath, I think he's going to be pretty late tonight, Patrick. She wiped her cheek on her shirt sleeve, but I'm sure he's going to love it. (laughs) 
The minute my eyes opened, I felt like I was drowning. I could feel that I was breathing fast and hard, but I couldn't hear it. The alarming sensation of my lungs expanding and collapsing in an urgent, straightforward drumbeat without the sonic result of a kick or resonant bass or tight snare filled me with panic. That horrifying realization that you're not hearing what you're supposed to hear. I sat up in my bunk and twisted my head to the right. I looked down into our small room, the shapes of our bookshelf and dresser shifting slightly as I got my bearings, and the sound slowly returned. Sickly strains of moonlight traced a macabre design on the carpet and covered me in dread. I wasn't the only one awake. Someone was in the kitchen downstairs. I could tell because even if you were standing completely still, the wooden planks in the kitchen floor would give and issue the slightest creak. The minutest shifting of weight would set them in motion. In the noiseless night of the farm, the creaks sounded like bones breaking. Both Patrick and I had developed an expert adeptness at being able to slide out of our bunks and descend the stairs without making any noise. This was primarily useful on Christmas mornings when the irresistible pull of presents piled high lured us out of bed two and sometimes three hours before the acceptable time preordained by our parents. I employed that same stealth now to move through the completely dark house and get downstairs before whoever was in the kitchen could know I was coming. If my dad was aware that I was standing near the front door looking at him, he didn't give the slightest sign. He was planted motionless in the kitchen, looking out into our endless backyard through the window above the sink, his great frame a fearsome statue, clothed half in pale light, half in a tangle of shadow. He was holding a rifle. When I realized this, my arms thickened into heavy weights and became cold and numb. My chest tightened and welcomed a rising thud, the pounding of one low piano key becoming louder and louder. Each reverberating tone coincided with a new, awful thought. Each awful thought barely forming before the next one took it over, pulsing notes bleeding together but retaining their chilling crispness, like some sort of gated echo had been applied. What is he going to do? He's going to shoot Mom. He's going to shoot Patrick. You cannot stop him. He's going to shoot you. You cannot stop him. He's going to shoot himself. I'm not sure how I was able to walk the three or four steps over to him in the middle of being so terrified. But even with the pounding notes looping back over my racing mind, I found myself next to my father, reaching my hand out and up to touch his forearm near the elbow. Dad, are you okay? He did not respond. Are you okay, Dad? Nothing. Dad? 
He moved suddenly and swiftly past me, with an instant strength and command of his imposing body that I knew I would never have, the same frightening grace as a thunderstorm in spring. By the time I turned around after him, he was out the door. What is he going to do out there? I hurried past the dining table over to the south sliding glass door in time to watch my dad walk briskly across the yard and down toward the driveway, the thudding still shaking my cold frame as he disappeared with the gun into the night. You cannot stop him. Patrick was asleep in bed with my mother when I got back upstairs. She was holding him to her chest under one arm and had her other hand over her mouth. As I crawled onto the bed with them, I could just make out in the darkness her frightened eyes, with tears pooling up in them and running down her cheeks over her fingers. Her shoulders trembled, and she looked like she was trying to hold something in that her body was trying to convulse out. She was shaking her head repeatedly left to right. I don't know if she was trying to tell me something, or if it was a barely controlled nervous manifestation of her fear. He's outside, I whispered. Her head continued to shake as she reached her wet hand for mine. What is he going to do out there? More shaking. And then both of us started at the crunch of the front door opening and slamming closed. We froze together immediately and remained completely still as we listened to my dad's footsteps travel across the floor. My mother and I began holding our breath at exactly the same time, each of us wondering when he would emerge from the dark at the top of the stairs. What is he going to do? Another step, and another. You cannot stop him. I didn't take a breath again until I heard him collapse onto the couch in the living room. That meant he had passed the stairs. My mother was still clutching my hand, and I looked over to see her bury her face in her pillow, finally dumping out a guttural wail muffled by the fabric until her throat was spent. The longer she cried, the harder she squeezed. When I shifted across the sheets to hug her, she sat up and took me in. Her whole body was shaking. I thought no matter how tight I hugged her, I wouldn't be able to make her stop. Her breathing was halting and irregular as she tried to calm down. T-t-t-t-try, she sputtered, willing herself to whisper. Try to get some sleep. I nodded and nuzzled down next to her. Right before I closed my eyes, I noticed Patrick was still deep asleep, and it made me feel good that he didn't hear my dad come back in. My parents' alarm clock showed 4.30 a.m. Try to get some sleep, Mom whispered again, kissing me on my forehead. In an hour and a half, we would all be eating breakfast together. 
Can I ride this out again? Can I continue to pretend that I am not my only friend? Something missing in the This episode of Lonely Boy is brought to you by Sick Picnic Media. 
To us, you're not just a listener. You're part of this journey now, too. For exclusive updates, sneak peeks, and maybe even a free track or two, hit subscribe, follow Frederick Julius on Facebook, or sign up for our email list. Don't forget, we release new episodes on all your favorite podcast platforms every Friday. Until next time, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, it's always a good time to imagine anything. Peace and much love. Please note, Lonely Boy is a work of fiction. Names, characters, businesses, places, events, locales, and incidents are either the products of the author's imagination or used in a fictitious manner. Any resemblance to actual persons, living or dead, or actual events is purely coincidental. Copyright 2023, Sick Picnic Media. All rights reserved, including the right to reproduce, distribute, or transmit in any form or by any means. For information regarding subsidiary rights, please contact Sick Picnic Media.